0: Hey, everybody. I'm glad you're watching this episode. If you are, it's because you accidentally clicked your mouse button, in which case I would just say, stay with us, or you actually intentionally want to learn about Christian apologetics. This is something that that just fell into my lap. I was in the middle of another segment talking about how few Christian apologists there are in the Wesleyan Methodist tradition, and I had a person write me and say, I actually know of somebody who this is his whole thing— and so I thought, yeah, let's let's see what a, a Methodist a Christian apologist looks like. I've never really met someone who that's like their thing. You know, of course, we all do Christian apologetics to some degree or another. That's just explaining the Christian faith to detractors, worldly detractors, or people of other faiths. Uh, Methodists, I haven't experienced being particularly confident in this. I've, I've seen most Methodists kind of punting and saying, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's about— Feelings, it's about personal testimony, but you know, converts aren't made through arguments. Uh, Apologists generally disagree and say, yeah, there's a place for that, but there's also a place for making arguments and engaging. Uh, aggressively other other worldviews and showing that not only is ours viable, but it's really the best. And so I'm, I'm really eager to have this conversation today with Robert Worthington. It's okay if you don't know his name. He's just now beginning the uh, ordination process in the Global Methodist Church, and it's because he's already established as a professional. He has a bachelor's in math <laughs> and accounting—I'm so glad we're not talking about these things today—from Wayland Baptist University, and then a law degree from Baylor Law School— Uh, he's, uh, both a certified public accountant and an attorney focusing mostly on business transactions, estate planning, and taxes. So whenever we get done with this call, I'm going to make sure that I've got all my affairs in order right there. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make him do that, but, um, I'm going to stop acting like I think I'm funny and I'm going to bring Robert on screen. Good to see you, Robert. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Great to see you. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're no stranger to doing stuff on the internet. You can talk about this or not, but you have a, a regular weekly Bible study that you do through a, a friend that's given you his platform. So your recording setup is, is as good as mine. People are going to enjoy crystal clear presentation now. But I, I want to start with um, your personal story, how it was that you came into the Methodist fold, into loving Christian apologetics. Uh, take as much time as you want. I, I think a lot of people will enjoy hearing your story.
1: Yeah, so my story, coming to Christ, is a little bit unusual. I was not raised in a Christian home. I am from Chile, South America, but I lived the last 20 years in Texas. So now I have this weird accent that is a mixture of the two. But um, I came when I was 17 as an exchange student to Plainview, Texas. And the host family, they were Methodist, and I started going to church with them. Now, at the time, I was an outspoken atheist atheist. And I always say this to just shorten the story picture the stereotype of the atheist with the fedora and everything. And you are exactly correct. So just Mm. run wild with the stereotype. And uh, but but I started going to church with them because I was determined to experience the whole American way of life. And for me, you know, going to church was was part of that. Again, picture like movies or whatever, the the view that an outsider may, may have of the United States. Well, so I started attending, and they needed a drummer. I offered to play drums for them. Now, they knew that I was an atheist. There was no trickery at all. They agreed. Now, looking back, I do think, well, was that really wise on their part to put an outspoken <laughs> atheist on stage? But, you but know, they did at it, the time. Yeah. <laughs> They agreed. Um, now, that meant, of course, that I went to church every week. And that whole first year, I went to church without being a believer. But I got to see my host family, particularly, the way they loved one another. There really seemed to be something there. Mm. It, and at church, there really seemed to be something there as well. The the people there, just they were so godly. There was something about them. So certainly there was this kind of experiential component to being open to the gospel. But I had some objections that I could not get over. And when I say objections, it, perhaps roadblocks would be the better word because at, at some point they became more unintentional in the sense that it's not, it wasn't really me fighting, saying, no, 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 but I'm not going to do this because, because I choose to reject it for this or that reason. I would say... I I would say, well, I can't accept it because I really can't make sense of this and the other. And Mm. a lady from church, she gave me two books. Uh, One was A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, and the other one was I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by... um, Oh, my goodness, I forgot the authors now.
0: (laughs) I always remember Frank Turek, but there's another one.
1: Yeah, Frank Turek. And yes, he he co-authored the book with uh, Norman Geisler. There it is. And I read those two books. Those answered the intellectual doubts that I had. And it was on my flight back to Chile for the summer because I I ended up returning to the U.S., but I went home for the summer that I accepted Christ. Um, And the kind of the point of that story is that sometimes people will say, well, nobody comes to Christ through arguments. And there might be some truth to that if if what they mean is exclusively through arguments. Sure, mm-hmm. I think I could grant that point. But I, I know from my own experience that arguments do have a place in conversion. They do have a place in coming to Christ. And so whenever I hear people say that, I mean, I just know, again, that, that it's not really true, that arguments are important. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. On the plane ride where you received Christ, was that an emotional event for you, or was it more of a mental ascent?
1: I would say it was both. I'm. It, it was not emotional in the sense of like you know, kind of tears coming down my face, but 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 it was both. It, it wasn't just like okay, I agree with this proposition. Mm-hmm. It it was a it was a commitment. I, I would say it was like you know asking somebody to marry you in the sense of they're, they're, there's not just a proposition there, but there's a whole commitment, a way of life. Mm-hmm. And the moment you take that step, like you realize that, that your whole life hinges on this. Your whole life is going to change. So, yeah, it was a very meaningful moment.
0: It's such a public place to do it on a plane. You're, a bunch of people are trapped with you, so I didn't know if you were just running down the aisles crying, crying and screaming. Uh, it, it sounds like it was less of a dramatic event than that, but still uh, a significant and uh, uh, powerful one. So uh, we're both Methodists. Mm -hmm. One of the foundational things uh, about John Wesley's teaching was that uh, conversion should be marked by uh, a specific moment of repentance and feeling the Lord's blood applied to one's spirit, or uh, justification, I think, is basically the, the word that encapsulates it. Uh, There are a lot of people today that don't really have a particular moment that they can point to. You've just pointed to a particular moment for you. Of course, John Wesley had his Aldersgate moment, the Heart Strangely Warmed event. Um, Is that something um, that you think that modern Methodists should continue to hold to and say, hey, you need need to know your moment. You need to have a moment. If you haven't had a moment, we need to help you get a moment. What do you think?
1: I think— that, that's difficult because if somebody has been raised in the church, maybe mm-hmm. they became a believer when they were five or something, and they might not remember a moment. But, but at the same time, there has to be, I think, a moment of commitment, if nothing else. Like, like I said, perhaps you've been a believer since you were too young to remember, but it seems to me that surely there would come a moment where you say, like, okay, I... I'm really doing this. I'm surrendering my life to Christ, and and you know, I mean, I don't know, but perhaps that's not true for everyone. But it seems to me that that would be the case in most, for most people.
0: So what we established right here is that we have a Christian apologist who can also say, "I don't know," and those those <laughs> are not always in in place. And so. Uh, Perhaps I'd be right in concluding off the bat that you don't believe it's the job of every Christian apologist to know the answer to every single question, but it's okay to say you don't know sometimes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think that is one of the pitfalls. If somebody really is interested in apologetics, there will be this temptation to not want to ever show ignorance or weakness, or whatever you would like to call it, and really— most of the time it is best to just say, look, I don't know. Or to essentially admit when you're at your depth to say, look, this is how much I do know. Mm. And if if you want to go beyond that, I'm sorry. I mean, I could, you know, if it's somebody that you talk to regularly, you might be able to say, I will look into this. I will find the answers and get back with you. Mm. And if it's not somebody that you will have a second conversation with, you can just say, look, this is as far as I can take you you you're kind of on your own from there and i think people respect that way more yeah. than making stuff up
0: yeah I, I get really i get tired of people who expect me to have a pat answer for everything but i also get tired of people whose excuse for not doing this work is i don't i don't know everything and of course mm-hmm. it's not just clergy who should be expected to do apologetics i i feel it seems to me that the scriptural expectation is that Everyone should be prepared. Every single member of the body of Christ should be prepared to give an account for the hope that they have. Now, it's not always going to be academic and detailed, but everybody should be able and willing to talk about their faith, not just with a friendly audience, but even with—I mean, the most powerful stories in the New Testament are with hostile audiences, and then seeing what the Lord does in that. So um, could you give me and and my viewers kind of an account of how much experience you've had talking— um, within the church, with fellow believers that are already on board, versus with non-believers, and what your experience has been with atheists or people of other faiths.
1: Well, I would say this kind of started right away after that that plane ride. I, you know, I landed in Chile, and I was determined that I had to talk to any of my friends I felt like I had influence towards atheism. I had to set the record straight and say I was wrong before. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time, I had read two books. I knew very little, but it was important from the start to set the record straight. From that point forward, I started reading a lot. Now, I always say this: I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody. I don't have like a degree to prove what I know or what I don't, and mm. and and that's fine, I suppose. But for the last twenty years, I've been reading. Um, a lot about this and, and watching a, a bunch of YouTube. YouTube is amazing for apologetics. Isn't it? I mean, we yeah. live in a golden age uh-huh. of apologetics. Yeah. And I started talking about it at church pretty much right away. At my Sunday school class, I would push for more scholarly books. I was never su- successful. I was only successful once. And uh, I, I, I don't know if I share this story over email, but um, I... I missed Sunday school one time and they immediately changed the book and we were just like in the middle of it. So I come back the next week and they were like, you missed, that was it. We changed oh, it. that's wrong. <laughs> it was all right. I get it. I get it. Um, what was the book? It, it it was actually not even a hard book. It was just um, a case for faith by Lee Strobel. I okay. thought that was like the next kind of step in that progression now, I will say a case for faith is significantly more like, esoteric than a case for Christ, because it's more about ideas okay. than it is about history.
0: But it was still too much for them, and okay. But you mm-hmm. stuck with them anyway. You didn't get your feelings hurt.
1: No, no. They're wonderful people. It, it was all right.
0: Have you been in it, the same church this whole time you've lived in the U.S.?
1: No. So I've moved around some. So I was at that church the whole time I was in Plainview, which was about six years, six or seven years. Mm -hmm. Then I moved to Waco for my law degree. Then I I moved to Amarillo, then to Dallas, then back to Amarillo. And so at Amarillo, I was a member at St. Paul uh, Methodist Church. And now I just moved to Arkansas. And I have been attending a GMC church here. I have not joined yet. Uh, but that will probably come soon.
0: Where are you in Arkansas?
1: In Bella Vista, which is just north of
0: Bentonville. Okay. I uh, I did my undergrad for four years in Conway, Arkansas, and then I lived okay. for a year in Little Rock. So, And then I was born in Texas, so you and I have had similar stomping grounds. So okay. May split yeah. the difference sometime, come over to Oklahoma, and we'll hang out.
1: I drive through there all the time, so maybe one of these days we really—that'd be fun.
0: That. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it. Um, let's get back into apologetics. Um, mm-hmm. So, your exposure with non-believers was where I was trying to drive you. So, how oh, yeah. how's your record been with with non-believers?
1: So, I um, of course over the years I've had many conversations here or there. I would say in the last two years it became a little bit more formal, if you will. Mm-hmm. I have been doing this this Bible study with uh, a youtuber who is not a believer now he he's very open to it that that openness has grown over time over the last couple of years and i'm not crediting myself with that i'm just describing his progression and on that podcast or or bible study people can participate live uh, some people are believers of of other denominations some people are i would say nominal Believers in, mm-hmm. and I'm just reading between the lines there from questions that are asked from time to time, and some people are straight up non-believers, and I would say it has been successful in the sense that, for example, just here recently, a couple of people commented live. One of them actually said it; the other one put it on the, on the chat, which doesn't you know doesn't get reproduced when when we post the audio. But uh, both people said that they had walked away from their faith and the, the Bible study was very meaningful to them and it had helped them to come back to faith. Oh, wow. That's um, wonderful. And and I've had other responses. I have been very intentional because, you know, if you're interested in apologetics, you realize that at the end of the day, the conversation is going to focus on maybe a dozen different topics, but there's nothing new under the sun. And, and knowing what those topics are i've tried to kind of build them into the 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 podcast into the discussion although we ha- officially we have discussed the book of john and now we're doing acts but for example the very first episode if you will i talked about textual criticism and i talked about it at length for the whole hour talking into the different textual families, you know, like the Western and Byzantine and so forth. For the
0: audience, textual criticism is the academic approach to kind of deconstructing the Bible and trying to suss out what's metaphor and what's literal, or even what's real and what's not. Uh, it's, It's a tradition marked with a lot of really problematic things for faithful believers, but faithful believers can sometimes engage in it faithfully and but it's just wading into those waters for unbelievers that are inclined to point out it's an inconsistent text, it's been changed in various times and translated. Uh, Okay, how do we wade into that in ways where we are able to explain? Actually, it's a very solid text, and you're very wrong to dismiss it uh, as anything other than that. So, okay, keep going.
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm glad you said that. Uh, The the common objection—let me phrase it as an objection— that somebody may have is well, you can't rely on the Bible because it has been changed thousands of times, mm. and that's really not true in right. any meaningful way mm-hmm. uh, it's it's only there's only some degree of truth to it if we are hyper technical and and what I mean by that is yes the the original manuscripts were copied and then those were copied and so forth, and that process has occurred many many times hundreds and thousands of times. But that's actually a very good thing, because then we can take all of these different copies and reconstruct the originals with ninety nine point nine percent accuracy. We may not know in certain instances what the original said, but it's almost never meaningful the you know the the two passages that that would be meaningful would be the the longer ending of Mark and the the story about the adulterous woman. Um, who was going to be stoned, mm-hmm. and uh, but no, none of our theology, none of our Christian theology, depends on either of those passages, except the, for rest of the oh,
0: snake God. handlers. Uh, c-
1: correct. <laughs>
0: this is true. Yeah, uh,
1: this is true. That this bothers me a anymore.
0: little bit, but I can still get over it.
1: <laughs> um, is that what you do on weekends? Are you uh, no, <laughs> no? Steps?
0: I just you know, I want I want God's family to be as big as possible, and so you know, I. If it shouldn't be in there, I don't want it in there, and it bothers me. It's in there, so it's got to be real. Uh, but uh, snake handlers are the only ones really doing it, and I, I really don't want to do it. So I don't know. That's kind of where I'm. I, I just, I kind of want to talk about something else because if it gets into, well, does it belong in the Bible or not? I'm going. That's not my decision. I don't know, man. <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't, I don't lean on those parts. But um, anyway, I shouldn't have derailed you, but. Um, yeah, that you were anticipating an argument that regularly comes up from people who want to detract from the Christian faith. Well, okay, your foundational document is so problematic, you can't lean on it. And you make the case, as, as anyone who looks into it would, it's the most historically attested document in the ancient world. We have thousands of manuscripts that, that agree with one another. The variations are insignificant theologically, historically, practically. It is a solid document.
1: Yeah, and and I would say it is important to to show and not just tell. You know, people use that phrase when talking about movies, like movies should show you something instead of tell you something. That that's a, normally an indication of a good movie. Well, when it comes to apologetics, something that that I mentioned in our in our correspondence is I think that we need to stop it with the thirty second answers because they they actually come across as lies. Mm. Um, the, your, if your listener is truly skeptical if, or if they truly have a question, if this matters to them, and you just say exactly what you just said, which is all true, by the way, I'm by no means criticizing you. Like mm-hmm. the Bible is it, very reliable for all the things that you said. But this is something that they care about. So, okay, let me explain it to you in detail. Let, let's go... Through the whole process, this is going to take an hour or two. There are no shortcuts. And I will say, I, I in it, this is just my experience, but in my experience, I have found that people in the church actually oppose that. They, they, they think, no, no, no. No one wants to sit down and have an hour-long conversation about textual criticism. In my experience, that could not be further from the truth. Yes, they do. I mean, not everyone. But that one person who has the question, yes, they want the hour-long discussion.
0: I don't know if you've considered the obvious conclusion that they only want to do that with you and not with uh, uh, American-born people, because you have an interesting accent to listen to that people don't get (laughs) bored of until uh, it might take an hour. But for someone like me, uh, it was just a joke. I I do think you're right. Well, okay, so but that highlights, then, an intolerance for theology in the Church and a hunger for theology outside of the Church. Have you experienced that as a a general truth?
1: Yes, I think that there is some of that. Um, Again, I think—but I think it's well-intended. What I mean by that is, I think people in Church think that the more we delve into theology, the more we're going to divide and confuse, and so— out of good intentions they say hey let's not let's not get into that that's not going to be beneficial or fruitful or build people up
0: so how much but, do you think it's uh, really that versus we have a bunch of people in the pews who have not been equipped theologically to to speak at any length about anything they're deeply insecure and then they Project that insecurity onto others who are hungry. I I I wonder how much of it really is. Oh, they don't want that. They don't want that. I just notice all these old folks in the GMC Cape saying, "Here's what all the young people want," and it just so happens to be what I want. And it's that's not the case. I I wonder if there's a self-interested um, being turned off to apologetics because they're not capable of it, and also they don't want to be capable of it. They want to show up on a weekly basis, have their strong emotional worship, and then go home and live however they want. They don't want this more articulate, thoughtful, comprehensive, systematic theology that is required in order to engage non-believers that way. That is much less charitable on my end than you. I would still say they're well-intentioned, but I think good intentions pave the road to hell. Have you heard that saying?
1: I have, and and sadly I I would agree that 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 has been the outcome, Um, whether, you know, whether the more charitable explanation is correct or or whether it's less, you know, the the less charitable explanation is correct. The outcome is the same. Mm. We have have lost a lot of people because we're not willing to engage intellectually. Mm -hmm. I think that is particularly the case with the youth. Um, You know, the 90s and the early 2000s, they were like them, well... I think they were probably the most fun time for churches ever. You know, if you went to a youth group, Mm -hmm. they were doing all sorts of fun things, and it was just the best. But then you look at the same people who were in those youth groups 10 or 20 years later, and a lot of them have left the church. And now the even younger generation is not even entering the church to begin with, so they're not really even leaving it because they never become part of it, not in any meaningful way.
0: Well, and the real... I mean... Yes, to all that, but I, I had, I've, I'm I part of a men's discipleship group, and uh, one of the elders in the group just sent out a Christian Post article called Preteens Rejecting Several Biblical Teaching Survey Reveals. It's um, based on this uh, larger study on Christian worldview, which was uh, done at the Cultural Research Center, Arizona Christian University. They've been doing uh, longitudinal studies for, I, I want to say, at least over a decade, But they have a lot of stats in this article, and I haven't made it to the end of it yet, but it was just talking about, okay, the people that are in charge of educating our children in the churches are themselves biblically and theologically illiterate. Uh, Mm -hmm. When when you put them through theological assessments, some of them, a lot of them, a huge proportion of them, are not biblically recognizable Christians— a lot of them are just nominal believers. So what, what happens is we focus the biblical instruction, if there is any, on the adults. We just give whatever leftover, uh, lukewarm, milk toast instruction there is uh, to the children, and then, of course, the children find that uncompelling and they they leave, and then the next generation doesn't even come back. And yes, that's what we've seen. The last generation that was involved in youth groups in America was in the 1990s. I was a part of that. And it was exciting. It was also without any kind of foundation in Christ Jesus. The churches I'm serving right now, they had a big youth program. I tracked down all the people that were part of that youth program. Today, only one of them out of like 50 uh, is in the church. It was a terrible, terrible success rate, uh, or I guess a great failure rate. I don't know how you want to characterize that. But yeah, with our youth in particular, we've um, really—and so apologetics is part of that, but part of that is indoctrination. Well, and really, the two are synonymous, aren't they?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, education and indoctrination are yeah are synonymous. Um, and But I, I agree with you, and, and it's very sad that it has come to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was resistance in the Church. Now, I was young at the time. I was a new believer. I didn't know anything. So, I mean, take what I say with a grain of salt. But any time that I would mention apologetics, it was always met with, some level of resistance, like like it's not important, or again, it's maybe confusing. People are not going to be into that. Right. Now, I think that was a terrible mistake. I I think older people, and and I'm by no means trying to to attack older people at all, but I think there is a cultural difference between older folks and and now younger kids because if you are older, let's say even just 40-plus, you grew up in a culture that was mostly Christian or at the very least, Christianity was accepted as a viable worldview. Mm-hmm. Nobody certainly would mock you for it unless you were running around with the wrong kids, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but now kids, but when I say kids, I mean, anyone under 30, maybe somebody under 25, whatever, mm-hmm. They are in a different culture that really views Christianity as either as either stupid, to put it strongly mm-hmm. or or uh, bigoted, uh, wrong morally or both. Mm-hmm. and so they not only have to deal with intellectual pressure, like the questions that come their way, but there is a level of shame. Or, or, you know, that shame that it's being put on you. Mm -hmm. Well, if you cannot defend your worldview, that that shame is going to weigh on you and people are going to leave the faith. Now, I'm not saying that they should. I'm not justifying that. But we need to give them the tools so that they realize, no, my worldview is intellectually viable and there's nothing that I should be ashamed of. And, you know, this is neither silly nor quaint and certainly not wrong morally. And we have not equipped people to do that.
0: Yeah, you've already mentioned we privately corresponded a little bit. So one of the things that you've said that I don't know how many people have have thought about really, and I hope lay people in the church are thinking are watching this. I also hope there's clergy watching this. But you you said where in the church where is the space that people can ask hard adult questions. Uh, is it Sunday school? No, you got a curriculum we got to stick to. It sure isn't appropriate in congregational worship. Where is it? Most churches have zero space for people to actually ask questions that go beyond G-rated uh, uh, theology, which means that you've essentially infantilized generations of Christians. Uh, and, and you can look at Sunday school material a century ago, and tracking it out, getting dumber and dumber over the last century, and you notice that the people of our churches uh, also seem less and less able to articulate a Christian faith or cling to it in times of trial.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think—I'm I'm glad you brought that up, because mm-hmm. if people take nothing else away from this dialogue that we're having, mm-hmm. I think it should be that. It, I, I want people to ask themselves that question, just— but. And it's a very practical question. It has nothing to do with theology or anything else. Assume for a second that you had a tough question about theology. Let's say, you know, is predestination true or about the problem of evil? Why would a good God allow evil? And then ask yourself, where and when can I ask this question and get a meaningful answer? And the answer, not to exaggerate, is never, there, there's not a forum, there's not a setting in church when you can ask this. And that is a problem. We need to have, you know, we need to have a time or a place or a, some kind of thing where people go, yep, I can ask on Wednesday night. I can ask this guy. I'm going to get a solid answer. We're going to have a good conversation. It doesn't have to be Wednesday night, of course. I'm just giving an example. Sure. But that doesn't exist in the church and it needs to.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's, um, if anything, yeah, if my agenda in having this conversation publicly is anything, it's you and I belong to the Global Methodist Church, which is a new denomination, and we're figuring out what the cultural norms of this group is going to be, and is it going to be something primarily associated with a certain evangelical zeal and high emotionalism? Is it going to be something associated with the Anglican tradition and, and reclaiming liturgy? There are a lot of different directions it could go. Um, one of the things I notice is that for a lot of people, they are not Methodist because they know the story of the Methodist revival and John Wesley and the theological heritage that we have. They're not a Methodist because they're an Arminian, or that um, they—oh, there there are several legitimate reasons, a a certain scriptural reading lens. They're Mm -hmm. only Methodist because that's how they were raised, or that's all they've ever known, or that's what they've married into— and that, at a certain point, is not a sufficient reason for claiming a theological heritage. There has to be a point of familiarizing yourself with the tradition that you're a part of and owning that for yourself. And so my daughter and I, acknowledging this—I don't know if you've seen this—we've started on a series going through the New Global Methodist Catechism and mm-hmm. going by question, question through it question by question— uh, hoping that other people will join us on that and make this faith their own and see how the Bible points to it and how robust it is. If you don't have a time of doing that, then your faith is only ever a byproduct of circumstance, not really of confession or conviction. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that that you are not able to answer detractors or people who want to, okay, well, why do you follow Jesus and not the Buddha? Why do you follow Jesus and not science? You know. And so uh, if you can't articulate that, I feel like for most people there's got to be a, a dark place in their brain that that insecurity goes to and starts poisoning everything else in their spiritual life. Either that, or they just have to like perform some kind of lobotomy where they're just happy-clappy all the time and don't make them think, you know? And there are believers like that, and and they're part of the reason why people have a cultural stereotype about Christians being stupid, because they're willfully stupid, because they've learned that questions are really a threat
1: yeah and sadly I think that when people when people have unanswered questions, they will fester and eventually not for everyone but for many people it will result in them leaving church, not necessarily perhaps the faith, mm-hmm. maybe they will continue to be Christians, but in a very weakened form if if you know if, if that's okay phrasing um but they will go, hey that church or church in general is not edifying me now they may not think of it quite in those terms you know they may just think oh i'm tired of this or this is boring or whatever but it's because they do have some intellectual needs or desires you know cravings like i i want to know more about god in in all of this stuff but i'm not getting it and there's and so they're going to leave and and Again, I feel like people were sounding the alarm 20 years ago, and mm-hmm. we did nothing, and then people did leave. And so maybe now we have to pick up the pieces and go, okay, we we need to take it from here. Mistakes were made. Let's take it from here.
0: Yeah, the Irish uh, Christian tradition. i had heard this before. There's a guy with the last name Cahill that wrote a book saying uh, how the Irish saved Christianity or saved the world. The I wasn't... I still need to read a lot more about this, but apparently Western Christianity was in serious decline uh, across continental Europe, but the Irish Christians that were, of course, planted by St. Patrick were very rigorous in their faith, had these monasteries that were very uh, intense, and the Holy Spirit struck them and sent missionaries, monk missionaries, out back onto the mainland, and they essentially re-Christianized a post-Christian society. And a lot of people like me are wondering, okay, uh, that's uh, I'm not wondering, I'm of the mind that that's what's needed here. We, there are many people who I think identify as Christian, but really culturally, uh, confessionally, are worldly, and, and they just mm-hmm. say they love Jesus, but there's not really much that distinguishes them from the world, and to even talk to them about the difference between the the flesh and the Spirit uh, makes their eyes glaze over and so I don't know if there has to be more decline. I would rather there not be any more decline, and we just go ahead and re-evangelize America. Um, Do you think—okay, here's a question. If we are to re-evangelize America, do you think that that would be done best through um, apologetics or evangelism, uh, or—I already know the answer. It's going to be both, isn't it? Right?
1: Yeah, I I think it's both, but— I think the way we approach a post-Christian culture and, and a pre-Christian culture is is different, right? Um, well, I'm sure you know that the Pentecostal Church is the fastest-growing church in the world. Um, in fact, we, we will very quickly be speaking about the four major traditions in Christianity, right? Normally it has been three, it's been Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants. Well, very quickly, within the next 20 years, Pentecostals will be their own branch that will be large enough that it will rival any of the other ones. Mm. And in fact, they will be bigger than perhaps Protestants and Eastern Orthodox. They, it may take them a little longer to surpass Catholics. But they are having huge success in in these, what, what I'm going to call pre-Christian cultures. Now, I do know that the places where they go, like South America they have a history with christianity but um but it's not most people there are not uh they're not believers so they don't come from from families that have been believers for generations so they're not post-christian in that sense now in the west like the united states europe these are people who who now look back to Christianity and we go, we move forward from that. We left that behind because it was dumb, because it was wrong, or what have you. Mm -hmm. And I think to reach those people, there will have to be an emphasis in apologetics. Now, let me offer some evidence against what I just said, because I think it's important to to point it out. Mm -hmm. When you look at the churches that are growing in the UK, the churches that are growing, actually, I... Uh, listeners should double-check me on this, but I believe the two fastest-growing churches are Eastern Orthodox and Pentecostals. Um, And what do they have in common? They have this very spiritual experience. So even the West shows some openness to spiritual experience, to a church that is real in that sense. Um, But if YouTube is any indication, uh, we're also seeing a lot of people respond to argument, respond to apologetics. So maybe if if it's Methodist, we can marry the two, which I think is very much in our tradition to do yeah. exactly that. We could be so successful in bringing the gospel to so many people in the West.
0: Well, fill out that picture a little bit more. I'm very interested in that. I uh, I was raised personally, in um, the the mainline tradition, not very emotional at all, somewhat high liturgy, revised common lectionary, um, keeping service pretty clearly to an hour, Uh, sometimes some emotion being seen, but not a whole lot. Um, So this this charismatic flavor to the global Methodist church that's being undergirded by so many is kind of foreign to me on an experiential level— uh, but also, it's not like the mainline tradition I grew up in was especially academically rigorous or robust in apologetics. I would just, I would characterize it as lukewarm and and not very compelling. You know, that's the tradition that so many have left behind. So when we're imagining a tradition that is robust in doctrine and in the spirit. What does that look like in the modern world? Do you see good examples of that, or do, what kind of synthesis do you imagine between the examples we do have?
1: Mm. That's I feel like that is the million dollar question, to right. be honest. Um, but I think that I, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of tell you the evidence that I'm that I'm thinking of, and then yeah. maybe you will come to to very different conclusions. But here's some of the data points that I'm thinking about. One. The resurgence of the Latin Mass in the Catholic Church. The Latin Mass is growing um, unexpectedly, right? Who would in, think in that,
0: in spite of the Pope saying, "Don't do it anymore"? Mm-hmm. This has been yeah. an incredible thing. Yeah, people turning on the Pope who turned on the Latin Mass.
1: Yeah, and so the in in you know what kind of the reason I'm highlighting that is because we hear that you know we have to be as modern as we can be and there's strong indication that that is not true that there that actually a church that looks entirely modern is not appealing to the youth because it does not seem genuine and perhaps it is not genuine perhaps perhaps a church really should maintain some level of tradition and in, in mystique and and i'm not trying to sign, to to sound like weird about it but I, i'm just saying that the the spirit is is beyond this this earthly realm and so a church that is attuned to the spirit will have that that additional dimension
0: yes
1: um and so i think we should not get away from tradition it, now this is my opinion i'm sure that i'm going to get pushed back on this but in, in my opinion we should not get away from tradition, uh, young, young people are responding positively to that. Mm-hmm. And, and, but at the same time, maybe with tradition, we can b- build a little bit of flexibility, kind of that, that Pentecostal flexibility of, of maybe if the sermon goes a little too long, that is fine. And maybe if we sing an extra song or if we want to repeat a verse, even if that means church now is not an hour, but it's an hour and a half. Maybe that is fine because we are praising God and, and there's nothing wrong with praising God for another 20 minutes if 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 it happens. Um but at the same time we have to create these avenues for people to have very real conversations. And like I said, not not 30-second conversations. They are gonna be hours, hours long. There is no way around it. I, I feel again, if if people take nothing else from this, just hear me on this. There is no way around it. There is no substitute to having a real conversation, go into detail, go into the scholarship. You cannot get around it.
0: Well, that's a real hard point for a lot of people because a lot of people really are not interested in that. So is there anything to say to people who listen to you and just go, I don't want to do that?
1: Well, uh, let me let me put it this way from, from personal experience. The the Bible study that I do, um, to, to give people a sense of what it takes, even for somebody like me who who has been reading this stuff for so long, and I'm not claiming to be any kind of expert. All I'm saying is it I truly have spent hundreds and thousands of hours on on all this. Mm-hmm. It takes me fifteen to twenty hours every week to to prepare um i will I will read uh, very like for teaching acts right now. I will read very scholarly sources. I will check their citations like any good lawyer would. Then I will summarize it. Then I will do kind of a a rewriting of my summary. Then I will edit that again. It takes me an incredible amount of work to be able to put out a good product that I feel like if any skeptic uh, said, Well, why would you say that? Where did you get that from? I could pretty much back up every claim with some level of scholarship. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to do this. But what I'm saying is I have a full-time job that is very busy, very stressful and all that. And I I have made the decision to, to devote my life to this. This is very meaningful and I think that it is needed. Now, I'm not trying to put, I'm not, again, trying to like praise myself. What I'm, What I'm trying to do is to say, if you are interested in this, it's going to take work. And those people who are out there who are doing it well, whether you think I'm doing it well or not, doesn't matter. T- take whoever else you like, who you think is doing it well. It is taking them a great deal of work. And if you really care for the gospel and you have the ability to do this, then you just have to make the commitment. It's, it's going to be, you know, it's going to take work. Now, again, you might not do it every week like I do. Uh, that That's fair enough but whatever you can do, do it well.
0: So when we're talking about popular Christian apologists, um, there are some that are on YouTube only. Um, I I can think of the guy's face just fine. He's a a younger guy, and I, I think he started off a Protestant but he converted uh, to Roman Catholicism capturing uh, Christianity yeah that guy I forget his name so that that's that's one there's a, a guy a redhead named Ryan who's Roman Catholic he does a good job there's an Eastern Orthodox guy that uh, Jordan Peterson likes that uh, Gavin ortland and he have recently been I man I'm not able to summon all the names but then there are other people that that um, Oh, the Reformed guy with the big beard in, in Utah that takes on the Mormons and the abortionists. You know who that is?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, James White?
0: No, no, he's bald. No. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, but James White's another oh, one of them.
1: No, from uh, Apologia uh Studios. Oh, yeah, Church, yeah, yeah. yeah. That guy, yeah. Yes.
0: So um, a lot of these are online, and they're like... The people that they talk to that are detractors are also online personalities that make a shtick out of detracting from Christianity, and they'll have uh, uh, debates. But then the Apologia guy, whose name I'm going to remember later and kick myself, he he will go out on the street and actually talk to people. And that's the stuff that that most people are just terrified of. But man, that gets clicks like nobody's business, because that's actually where the rubber hits the road. You know, This is not scripted. This is just running into r- random people— and you run into um, all these different um, issues that, that are recurrent, this is what you were focusing on earlier, is there are probably like 12 main things that you're going to run into when you do apologetics, and you run into them over and over. They'll have different nuances from person to person, but if you're equipped in these 12, you, you've, you know what you're doing. So when you're talking about, going back to your most recent thing you were saying, doing this, when you're talking about doing Christian apologetics the way you do it, as a single man in the academy and in a professional world, is mostly online at this point, um, mm-hmm. and and you're able to dedicate a massive amount of study to it and spend time with people talking about it at length, like we're doing right now, which is wonderful. Thank you. But there are a lot of people that I would think are called to apologetics, and they're not necessarily going to be professionals about it, but they still are expected to, uh, and by expected I mean by Christ Himself to talk about the hope that they have, why they have it, and be able to engage in that with their families, with their coworkers, with their neighbors. And so what that requires to my mind is engaging—well, I'm of the mind that the church should be equipping people to do apologetics, that when a church is only ever keeping people at a, an immature beginner level, that they're really—well, the scriptural language is that they're keeping them on the milk and not giving them the meat, Right. And Mm -hmm. that's, I I think that the church is neglecting its duty to raise uh, informed believers that can engage the world around them. And so, of course, we're going to decline as an organization because we're not, we don't even know what we're doing. We don't know how to engage strangers or friends or family alike to do this stuff. So, I'm again coming back to this question of what does the right church look like that is equipping proper evangelists, apologists, people who, um, spread the faith effectively to the next generation. Yeah, I didn't mean to go this direction, but that's where we're going now. So have you noticed there in any local churches being good engines of equipping the saints for this kind of ministry? It's clear that you've mostly done it yourself, but um, is it your mind that, that the Church really can't do it very well and it has to be an individual exercise?
1: Well, the example that comes to mind that for me would be the gold standard are you familiar with William Lane Craig?
0: Yeah, the yeah. I should have said his name should have been the first out of my mouth. Yeah,
1: yeah. So um, he, you know, of course he's. Um, I, I'm just going to say it. I think he will go down in history as one of the best Christian philosophers in the history of the church. Uh, I, I think he's he's that good. Mm. Um, now he does a defenders class at his church, which is a Sunday school class, and he actually posted online, but I don't think that was the original intent. Um, and you know, people go to his Sunday school class, he will go through Christian doctrine and apologetics. The whole cycle, I cannot recall, but it takes like three years or something like that, or maybe mm-hmm. two years mm-hmm. for him to cover all of the major theological topics. I mean, doctrine of God, doctrine of man, um, uh, doctrine of salvation, uh, doctrine of the last things, all of the things you would learn in seminary. And uh, apologetics, he will cover those topics as well. He will go through the main arguments, you know, cosmological argument, ontological argument, and so forth. And uh, he has been doing this for years. He has done that class maybe like four times in the sense that he has restarted that cycle about about four times. People can tune in to it on Sunday just to see how it works. Mm -hmm. And it is uh, to, to be... To be honest, it's every bit more rigorous than a seminary class. Yeah, as and one who
0: attended seminary, it wasn't rigorous for me. Uh, the, the local church can easily outdo most seminaries.
1: Yeah, and and so if—now, of course, not every church is going to have a William Lane Craig at their church. I, right. I get that, but surely they have somebody—or, um, no, surely, perhaps they don't have anybody. Some churches will have a hard time doing this. But could more churches have classes like that? And the thing is, this would, this would snowball because if we can prepare some people, then those people are going to move and join some other church, and they can do it at their church. But we have to start somewhere, and I think we need to start teaching like the rigorous theology and apologetics, not cutting any corners, and that can be done. And, th- and that one example that I mentioned with William Lane Craig is a good example.
0: Yeah, well so the Bible itself does apologetics. I mean it's not as though we have to make up things from whole cloth. I mean the when when Satan is coming and testing Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus responds with scripture and and disarms mm-hmm. Satan's wiles. And so so much of this is if you're if you're encountering the scriptures and worship and paying attention, you are going to get equipped in some rudimentary sense for apologetics. If you are engaged in a small group, whether it be Sunday school or a Wesleyan class meeting, you will be encountering materials that can equip you. Uh, So much of this, I think, is kind of cultural, where I think a lot of people are used to just in one ear and out the other. It's someone else's job to talk about the faith, that's what we pay the guy up front to do. Uh, I, I wonder if we kind of shifted the culture and every individual understood themselves to be Being equipped so as to take the gospel out to a world that does not know it, that things would look different. Um, So one of the things undergirding the current culture, I think, of Methodism—Methodism started off as kind of a a bellicose and aggressive and disagreeable revival movement. Uh, It it was uh, undergirded by uh, an argument that the Anglican Church was really falling down on the job was too lukewarm, that they had, were not doing a good job, and someone else, uh, a parachurch movement, a revival, needed to step in and do the job they were failing to do. When Methodists came over to America, they continued uh, individual preachers would come into town and face off in the public square against whatever preachers were there, uh, doing pioneer apologetics, pretty much, is is what I would call that it was only in the last century where we started really backing off from that kind of um, disposition against the world or against other Christian traditions that had gotten too lukewarm, and we became kind of lukewarm ourselves. Now, William Lane Craig is an agreeable person. Like, when you talk to him, I mean, he went on Ben Shapiro and gave a very winsome presentation of the gospel, and but was simultaneously able to push him. There are other... Um, um, apologists that are much more confrontational and disagreeable, Mm -hmm. and I think that there's room for both, but I don't think there's going to be either if people don't come to terms with the fact that people killed Jesus because he was disagreeable, he said the world would hate us because we would be like him, and that means that we should be disagreeable sometimes. I think there are so many people who want to imagine that you can stand by Jesus and never offend anybody, and that's the thing that I think is undergirding a lot of the discomfort with apologetics is you look at these, and it's generally men that do it, although though I'm sure there are women apologists, at least uh, Elisa Childers does a lot of good work um, mm-hmm. on YouTube, uh, Allie Beth Stuckey, but um, there are a lot of people that just are so uncomfortable with the notion that they should have to be disagreeable like Jesus was disagreeable. And so is there is that something that engages an apologetic nerve of yours, or is it more... You think the job of the local church just to continually push people and hope that they get convicted?
1: No, I, I think, like you said, there's room for both kinds of apologetics. I try to be the more agreeable kind, kind of like a William Lane Craig in style, of course, not in stature. Like I said, he he's he's no at go a for the stature; level. you'll be great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, th- I think something that that helps me when it comes to that is I don't think we're responsible for convincing people, uh, you know, I do not measure my success by whether you are convinced or not. I measure my success by whether I presented information honestly and accurately. Those, those are my standards. Um, and then that you know, as a Wesleyan, I, I believe that you have a choice regarding how you react to the gospel and that, that choice is yours to own. And I'm not responsible for that. And so I think that takes a lot of weight off in, in two ways. If, if people think, well, maybe I'm not going to do a great job, you know, I'm going to lead him away from Christ. No, that decision is on them. You don't put that pressure on yourself. Now, you do have a responsibility to, again, try to do a good job, to be honest and accurate. Um, but then... Uh, sometimes we, you know, we have to be disagreeable. And again, if the thought in the back of your mind is, "Well, if I'm disagreeable, I'm going to push them further away," again, that is on them. That is not on you. What they're you already have to gone. do is to speak truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if they're
0: already truth. gone, the worst case scenario has already happened. So, uh, worst case scenario, things stay the same. But best case scenario, you actually change something in their lives. I I'm mm-hmm. a person who's moved by memes sometimes. I guess in that way, it means I, I'm still on milk and not on meat, but there is a meme that bounced around. I saved it. I, I can't pull it up immediately, but uh, it's not our job to convict people. It's not our job to uh, uh, persuade people. Uh, it goes down a list of all these things. It ends with, it's only our job to warn people, and that's not exactly what you were talking about. You're, you, but uh, I, I hear the the connection there being, we want to be all things to all people, but we really can't. You know there there are certain limitations relationally, logistically that that we just have to reckon with. At the end of the day, you know, or at the end of history, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we need to have an explanation to Him for why it was that we did not tell our neighbor about. Salvation, while we knew they mm-hmm. were living in darkness, and there's not going to be a sufficient explanation for that. If we think that we're going to go, oh well, Jesus, I just wouldn't have done a very good job. You know, I was waiting for a William Leg Craig to come along. I just mm-hmm. don't think that he's going to go. Oh yeah, I totally understand. Come in anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, at a certain point, there, how much do you have to hate your neighbor not to at least try? You know.
1: Yeah, it's true. And now I I do say that with fear and trembling because I know that I have passed up too many opportunities to share the gospel so i am as guilty as anyone else on this matter it is difficult but we take it one day at a time and and we try to improve every day and so let's just let's do better that's you know that's what Sometimes i Sometimes that's the most day.
0: loving thing to say is do better
1: <laughs> honestly i mean that right that's part of the christian forgiveness it's like okay so you've messed up up to this point let's do better today and if you mess up today let's do better tomorrow That's just our attitude. Every single day, we're going to do better.
0: Well, we're in the final minutes of this particular conversation, and I'd I'd be surprised if we don't talk again. I just think there's a wealth of knowledge that you have, you know, as you're going through the list of the ontological argument uh, and all this terminology. there's some people whose eyes will glaze over, but I think there are a lot of people that are going to listen to that and go, I think I'd like to know more about that, so— uh, we're going to have a link for viewers to to follow up with Robert, where he uh, publishes his his weekly segment. And you can go back and, and listen to all that. But also, um, you know, dip your toes in. It's it's a big world, practically speaking. You and I are both involved in the the Global Methodist Church now. We want to be a benefit in particular to our tribe. Our tribe has grown anemic um, in this particular area. What's one exhortation? That you would make to, you know, I would like to think the majority of my audience is global Methodist. What's one exhortation that you would make for people to either do in their personal lives or do in their church that you think would move things in the right direction?
1: I would say, if I would say this, if you're interested and you just don't know where to start, check out The Defenders Class by William Lane Craig. It is very standard theology. Now he's Baptist, but he, he says himself that he's Wesleyan mostly in, in theology, in outlook. So the theology that he teaches will be very close to what the GMC would teach. And it's, it's understandable. I think that's a good starting point. Now, if you want to start elsewhere, that is fine too, but my exhortation would be start somewhere. And I I have at least given you kind of one breadcrumb that you can start to follow. Um, so I would say that I would say, in your local church, figure out where and when people can ask the hard questions. And if, and again, if the answer is never, there's a problem there, in my opinion. So maybe start considering that. It may take a while to solve, but we got to start somewhere. And I like the, that. Yeah, go ahead. My my last thought on this is, I really feel like as Wesleyans, as Methodists, I keep saying Wesleyan to just kind of be broader in scope, but mm. but as it's Methodists, we. This is what we are about. When I look at the Methodist history, it, it started in a situation just like this one, or very similar to right? this one. Yeah. There was this church that, that had grown cold, and and John Wesley comes around, and he's not even trying to—it is not a revolution. It is not really even a reformation. He's just saying, the thing that we are supposed to do, let's actually do it. Yes. He, you know, he's not trying to create a separate church none of that that's what we are about and how did he do it he did it with the proper method (laughs) hence our name he said we are going to meet a certain times we are going to study we are going to keep each other accountable this is not a game if we could do that if as methodists we could say okay it's time to be methodical. That's our whole shtick. Mm-hmm. We are going to meet at certain times. We are going to study this seriously because it matters. This is not a game. I believe that we would grow leaps and bounds and we would be so successful for the gospel because that is exactly what is missing right now. And we can be those people. That is who we are. So let's let's truly reclaim it. I know so many people say, let's reclaim our heritage. Okay. You mm-hmm. know how you reclaim your heritage? Not not by just talking about it, but but by actually engaging in the methods that got us to this place, in a good way, I mean, that, that made the Methodist Church grow yeah. the way that it
0: did. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people who listen to this are going to feel challenged. And man, kudos for you guys if you made it to the end of this, and you're one of these uh, that that we've kind of disparaged along the way where, you know, your faith is much more about emotions than it is about adult thinking. Um I hope that people just feel pushed to not necessarily pursue apologetics in any kind of professional capacity, but just to make their faith more robust, to be able to speak about it more intelligently, and to actually be able to transmit it on to the next generation. And so, to that end, William Lane Craig really is awesome. I've enjoyed listening to him. You know, it might be worth, you know, instead of watching funny cat videos on the internet, find William Lane Craig or look up Capturing Christianity, find the apologist that is on your wavelength and can walk you a bit further. So um, we'll have some links in the show notes to some of these resources that we've mentioned here, but um, at a certain point, everybody's got to carry their own load and assume responsibility for their own walks. So yes, improve the church, your church, your local—if you're not involved in a local church, you really should be. Um, but, you know, take Robert's advice and make sure there is a place in the local church— that you can ask the hard questions. And if you're in a Methodist church that's talking about reclaiming its heritage, make sure it's not just empty words. Really do it, you know? Learn the story of where Methodism came from and why, and reclaim not just uh, the, the spirit and the doctrine, but the discipline, the rigor of it. And uh, I, I'm optimistic with you, Robert, that if we can do this, there is no reason why we can't turn the world upside down again. So uh, that's, that's what you and I are both involved doing in, in different capacities online and in the real world. And uh, there are a lot of other people doing that too, and there need to be more in the Wesleyan uh, Methodist world, because uh, others are getting out ahead, and we're better than them in a lot of ways. So have some pride, own your faith, and um, make sure to check out Robert and what he's doing. Um, if you've enjoyed this conversation, like it, share it, subscribe, subscribe, all that usual stuff. I really like reading the comments in particular, so go ahead and comment. You can also write me privately at plainspokenpod at gmail.com, and then you can support my work and talking to interesting people like Robert by supporting me on Locals. So uh, if you don't know what that is, go to the end of this video where I'll have a little informational thing. But uh, Robert, let's just say a, a, a short blessing for you on your journey. You're starting the uh, ordination path in the GMC, which is a, a blessed thing. You're able to go slow through Asbury uh, which is a, a fantastic uh, seminary and uh, I, I just think it'd be good for people intentionally pray for Robert that he would navigate all he's got a full-time job he's doing 20 hours of apologetics research each week and completing this program so god bless you brother <laughs> i uh, may the lord grant you the the strength and the discipline and the the endurance that you need throughout all this so thank you for joining me today thank you yeah all right friends we'll say goodbye and I'll see you next time